Creative Babble. Did I actually call you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that that's no big deal. We can... Oh, that's fine. That's fine. Oh, you were, you were trying to text me or were you trying to call? Um, Michael Torres says that he accidentally called me. But he sure had a lot on his mind. No, no, no worries. Um, so my attorney tells me we need to stay away from questions that pertain to the ongoing lawsuit because we are going to litigate it. In the last episode, Michael Torres gave me reason to believe that maybe there are two sides to every story. If he can produce evidence that counters what Seafair Exploration is saying, then everything they're claiming about him is wrong. So what's really going on here? Do you have any documentation to support any of those credentials? I mean, yeah, I have my, I physically have my PhD from like I, the actual diploma. <laughs> I have my offer letter from Lincoln Labs, MIT. I have my, <laughs> I have my library card from MIT on me right now. Yeah. I have my, I'm on, I'm on travel, so I can get them to you. I, I have a DD-214, which is uh, honorable discharge. And I have my transcripts from the Citadel. What else do you need? Yeah, I'd love to see that. I have no problem backing up. You're still in Florida, hey, so, though, right? No, I'm currently in Charleston. I'm heading back to Savannah for the rest of the day. So I found the pirate tunnels, and I found a pirate hand grenade in them. So I'm, I'm back, like, investigating that. Torres quickly changed the topic back to his adventurous life. If you're a little confused by this, you're not alone. I'll do my best to untangle all of Michael Torres' stories, and I'm going to try to corroborate all the claims the Seafarer is making against him. This story is wild. By the end of this, I will contact an archaeology professor from an Ivy League school, I will speak to the attorney representing the Kingdom of Spain, and I will even reference an encyclopedia to fact-check something. Can you imagine? An encyclopedia? I'm Javier Leva, and this is Pretend. Stories about real people pretending to be someone else. Picture this, a foggy evening, the whisper of secrets in the air, and an invitation to step back into the glamorous and mysterious 1920s. That's the backdrop of June's Journey, the game that's been keeping me glued to my phone lately. Instead of doom scrolling on social media, I am actually playing the part of June Parker, a daring detective with a personal mission to solve her sister's murder. And let me tell you, it is a roller coaster of emotions and puzzles. What's to love? Well, first of all, the thrill of hunting for hidden objects. I'm a sucker for these kinds of games. It's kind of like those books that we grew up with, but with a storyline that keeps thickening. Plus, the game takes place in New York to Paris, uncovering clues of scandalous family secrets that make you feel like a real detective. If you're ready for a dose of mystery, romance, and the glamour of the 1920s, June's Journey is waiting for you. Download it for free on iOS and Android, and let's see who cracks the case first. What you're hearing right now is Michael Torres traversing through a dense patch of overgrown grass somewhere in Savannah, Georgia. The exact location, he won't say. And as he's walking around, he stumbles upon a black rock sitting above the ground. Torres grabs his knife 
and digs up a little white fleck embedded into the rock. It's a broken piece of ceramic, white with cobalt blue markings, about the size of a quarter. Ah, Ming Dynasty. There we go. That's Ming. Now we're talking. Torres says that this is Ming yeah. Dynasty pottery. That's seven. That's. 16, During the course of this short video clip, he was able to find handmade bricks and what he says is colonial era glass shards. That is colonial glass. See the color? Yeah. What happens when they age? Michael Torres is looking for a lost settlement that could date back to as early as the 1600s. Here's Michael Torres explaining to me the significance of what he found. Oh, and by the way, sorry about the poor audio quality. Michael called me from a noisy restaurant. So I'll give you the entire background story. There's an old Gullah Geechee legend of this map called the King's Survey. The Gullah Geechee people were taken from West Africa and enslaved in plantations around South Carolina. And one of the descendants, a woman named Isabella, helped raise Michael Torres. He says that she would tell him stories about a forgotten legend. It's called the King's Survey. It was commissioned by King George III. The King's Survey, according to Torres, is the most accurate map of the colonies ever created. And it was a legend. No one knew what happened to it because it was believed that the, the colonial government ordered it destroyed so it didn't fall into the hands of the British. I had never heard the story about the King's Survey, but then again, I'm not a historian. So I looked it up, and it turns out that the internet doesn't know anything about it either. We found it. We, we tracked down the descendants of, the, of, of the, the gentleman that was the surveyor in Richmond, Virginia. So why is this survey of the colonies so important? Torres believes that there are two lost settlements from this time period. If he can locate it, it would be a historical breakthrough. So Michael Torres says he went to the library and dug through land records, titles, grants to try to trace the origins of this document. Then it hit him. He logged on to Ancestry.com and he thought maybe if I can retrace the lineage of the man who created this survey, he can get more answers. Call it plain luck or amazing detective work, but after identifying 42 possible descendants, Michael Torres says he located a family member who inherited the King's survey. They, they didn't really know what they had and we told them and they're they like, wow, that's really cool. Uh, what do you need from us? I'm like, can I make a copy of it? They said yes. So I did. I haven't seen this survey and I'm not a historian, so I can't verify if any of this is true. I reached out to historians who studied this time period, and they've never heard of the King Survey either. Frustrated by so much time wasted researching this, I called Michael Torres back to see if he can shed some more light on this King Survey. Did you go on Ancestry.com to track down the descendants? Is that yeah. what this is saying? Yeah. And uh, the descendants of who? Uh, so they... Mm, let me see if it's okay if I tell them your, like the name. Okay, so I don't have the King's survey, and I don't have the name of the descendants, so all I have to go on is Torres' account of all this. But let's go along with this anyway. Now that he has the King's survey in his hands, he can begin searching for the missing colonial settlements. But in order to find it, he first has to reference places on the survey that still exist today. And there are two landmarks on that survey that are still that still stand in Savannah today. 
And we use those to triangulate the position of those missing settlements because the missing settlements are actually on the map. So are the two missing forts. Torres says that one discovery led to another. Since locating the survey, he's focused his attention to excavating the foundations of a colonial era bridge. We're actually using sandbags to change the current and the flow of the canal to give us more time to dig. Torres found broken pieces of pottery and coins. He also found a rusted handgun, which someone dumped into the river. But that's not all. So we found we found the colonial lockbox. What we think what we think is the colonial lockbox. So we're going to get that excavated on camera. So what does that mean? What, what is the colonial lockbox? So basically, their bank safe. We think we found their bank safe. Hey guys, I'm here back I'm back here at that uh, missing settlement. I came at low tide, so to get a better idea of uh, what I was looking at. The iron box is peeking out of the sand. It's completely eroded. So that colonial lockbox, there she is. Look at how thick that iron is. Even has some of the colonial bricks oxidized into it, which would have held it into the wall. We have a major dig uh, first week of October and the entire team's coming into town. And is this work that you were commissioned to do, or is this just something you do for fun? Um, I've been finding a lot of treasure. Like, we found an 892-carat ruby. We found a ton of gold. I've, I've been selling some of our finds to fund this. He never really did answer my question. It seems to me that most of Torres' work is uncommissioned. He goes around looking for treasure, hoping to hit the jackpot. So, essentially, you're, you're going out finding these things that are already out there that you kind of have a, a clue or you, you're kind of going off yeah. research or what made you so, look for these things? Um, so I, I grew up in Charleston. I grew up in an old ancient, by American standards, ancient port city. I'm finding this stuff like all over the place, like Ming dynasty shards, colonial coins, uh, civil war coins. Like I, I found. A- he basically answered my question by flooding me with even more questions. Like I, I found a blockade runner. You know what a blockade runner is, right? Um, go ahead and explain it, just in case. Okay, so... During, during the Civil War, War the Union strangled the Confederacy economically by preventing it from trading, cutting off the South from much-needed supplies. President Lincoln ordered the Navy to block ships from entering or exiting the ports in southern states like New Orleans, Charleston, and Savannah. But some Confederate ships were able to slip through and get away. These are the blockade runners that Torres is referring to. Well, they would try to sneak out of, of the harbors. So we we discovered one of the blockade runners and it was full of Confederate silver. Here's a clip from a local Fox station out in Orlando. The news station's Mike We were out there for hours and, you know, searching that long and finally finding something of such cultural significance is, is just, it's, it's enthralling. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a high. Dr. Torres says his next move is getting additional manpower, more hands to dig. Yeah, it was, it was full of Confederate, uh, Confederate silver coins and a lot of British coins. So there was rumors that the British were aiding the Confederacy. I haven't personally seen any of Torres' findings other than what he has shown to the local news. We found a number of English coin the same time period on that wreck and a luggage tag that linked back to a gentleman that was in the intelligence service of England at the time. 
So we could prove that a representative of the crown was on that ship and a ton of English coin, also a ton of Confederate silver. I'm not a historian, but from what I can tell, officially the UK remained neutral during the Civil War. However, there is some chatter on the internet that some British elite may have supported the Confederacy, but I didn't get any substantial evidence to prove it one way or the other. Putting history aside, many people were impressed by these discoveries. A Florida prep school jumped at the chance to help with the dig. Students from the prep school grabbed shovels, trowels, and sieves in order to help Torres recover more artifacts buried under the sand. They claimed they recovered a rusted battle axe, artillery rounds, and other pieces of rusted metal around the site. The school even offered Torres a job teaching archaeology at the prep school. So I contacted the president of the Florida Prep Academy School just to see what he thought of this Michael Torres guy. It turns out there never was a course taught by Torres. The school president wrote to me and said, and I quote, Quite frankly, he did not satisfy our due diligence criteria or pass our screening process, unquote. Let's go back to the King's survey, because this next story is a real head-scratcher. Remember, Michael Torres initially went out looking for those lost settlements, but what he ended up finding was actually pretty disturbing. And we found the first settlement like right off the bat. And But on the way to go discover that settlement, we found that mass grave. Here's audio of a video of Michael Torres walking down the bluff of a river near Bonaventure Cemetery in Savannah, Georgia. I, I think we stumbled onto a hate crime. We found about, so far I'm, I'm up to 43, 43 yeah. tombs that they etched off the names, they broke them out the names, and they all appear to be Jewish. In the video, you can clearly see broken tombstones scattered all over the ground. Most of the graves appear to have Jewish names or are written in Hebrew. Oh my God, I'm standing on one. Oh, 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 my dad. Oh, oh they're all around me. Torres appears oh, shaken. He yeah, picks up right. his cell phone and FaceTimes someone. Who? I'm not sure. I found something really disturbing. Uh, I'm just going to show you. Uh, I, I, I'm trying to get the word out. I don't know what happened here, but it. Here, I, I'll let you see. We just found a graveyard, a Jewish graveyard that's been desecrated. I don't know what happened here, but I'm trying to. I'm trying to get the word out about this. They're all Jewish. They all have Jewish last names. And it looks like they just threw them into the river. So you said you also found a mass Jewish grave? Where where did you find that? Right behind you know have you ever seen the movie Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil? Yeah, it takes place that in Savannah, one. right? Yeah. Bonaventure is Savannah's largest cemetery. It's 160 acres filled with history, beautiful sculptures, and draped in Spanish moss. The site Torres is searching is somewhere along this property. We stopped counting at 208 tombs. The earliest we found was 1827, and that was before Bonaventure was a cemetery. It was a plantation at that point. Torres and his cameraman continue walking alongside the river. They find tombstone after tombstone. Each grave marker appears defaced or partially destroyed. Uh, so far, 63 tombstones and tombs that have been desecrated. It's crazy. And their names chiseled off. And they all seem to be 
I'll do is descent. Thrown into the river. Mostly we're going to contact the local synagogue, get in touch with these people's families, let them know where their loved ones are. Yep. This is a mass grave. This is a mass grave. Who would have thought we'd have a mass grave in America? I want to stop here and say that this is really odd. These tombstones have obviously been desecrated, but this is not a mass grave. That seems a little hyperbolic. By definition, a mass grave is just a pit with unidentified bodies, and it implies that these people were killed or executed. And on top of that, these are Jewish graves. I mean, the implications of this is horrible. Plus, so far, Michael Torres has only found the tombstones, not bodies. Then they stumble upon something that Torres says appears to be a casket. But you know what? It's really hard to tell from the video. That's a casket. That's that's human remains. I didn't see any human remains. The camera pans off before you can even tell what's inside. I'm going to have to call somebody from Bonaventure Cemetery to explain why there are tombstones scattered all along the river. But first, I want to talk about this Peruvian death mask. That's coming up after the break. Let's go back to when Michael Torres was an engineer for seafair exploration, way before the lawsuit. Remember the Peruvian death mask that Torres found buried in the beach? Well, I wanted to learn more about this. Torres tells me that that day, it was pouring rain. The seas were too rough to explore, so the search for La Concepcion, you know, the sunken Spanish galleon, was called off. Instead, Michael Torres decided that he was going to walk down the beach waving his metal detector in the middle of the storm. He wasn't looking for the Peruvian death mask. In fact, he says that that was the last thing he expected to find. Michael Torres says that he was cold, wet, and shivering. But that didn't stop him. After seven hours of searching, his metal detector finally gets a strong hit. He starts digging. Here's Michael Torres. Again, please excuse the poor audio quality. And I didn't know what it was at first. Until I cleaned it off, I thought it was just, a, it, it was pinging on the metal detector, a very strange chirp. If a kid digging up a sandcastle, would they have been able to find it or is it deeper than that? It was deeper than that. It was seven feet down. But the the, the conditions were that were such that the most of the seven layers, seven feet of the layers of the, of the sandy beach were just wiped away. So it was, it was within range at that point of the metal detector. So it's been buried there for a while. You said you didn't immediately know what it was, right? The green was a dead giveaway that it was copper. You couldn't really make out the distinctions of the, the details of the mask. You couldn't tell it was pre-inked by just looking at it. But you could tell it was, an, it was an interesting piece of metal because of the oxidation. The metal object buried underneath the sand was what Torres claims to be a Peruvian burial mask. The mask doesn't look the way you expect it to. It's pretty lightweight, thin, and flat. Even though it's broken in half, this piece of metal is very strong. Torres says that it's almost the strength of titanium. It's also quite large. The green disc is about the size of a large dinner plate. The mask is covered in pale green, which is consistent with the way copper oxidizes over long periods of time. So what makes this Peruvian? Well, the art stamped on it resembles pre-Hispanic style of Moche civilization that could date back thousands of years. 
Torres says that he spent 45 minutes digging before he found the metal object. Did you say you were having like symptoms of hyperthermia around the same time? Oh yeah, I was hypothermic. Oh yeah, oh yeah, I was hypothermic. And why was that? Yeah, I got pneumonia. There, it was a winter storm, and I know it's Florida, but if you spend enough time out there, your core temperature drops, and you can get hypothermia in 70 degree water if you're in it long enough. So yeah, when you stop shivering, that's stage two hypothermia. That start worrying when you stop shivering. So why, why were you looking for this if you were feeling so bad? Yeah, I, I don't give up. I don't give up. I'm on mission. You're going to have to, you're going to, it's going to have to be a life threatening injury to get me to stop. And you're going to have to drag me out kicking and screaming. That's crazy. Most people will go to bed. <laughs> Keep in mind that Torres was working for Seafair Exploration when he discovered the mask. I did this while I was working with him, but I went on, on my own. And the reason I did that is because I was, I was, wasn't, um, thrilled with the amount of progress that was being made on the site they weren't going out there they were taking in all of these funds to go out there and treasure hunt and they weren't going they had went out twice that year so i decided that i was going to go out on my own after a storm or during a storm and see what i could find and that's when i found it new tonight a rare piece of history washing up on the beach it's an ancient mask but there's you can't just pull precious metals out of your well, and that's that's what I was going to ask you. How do you fake a Peruvian burial mask? How do you fake? I had no idea. I didn't even know it was a thing until I found it. Right. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know any of this. Okay. I thought it was a piece of the space shuttle at first because it reminded me of the density of titanium. Torres takes great pleasure in knowing that he found this precious artifact when no one else could. He says he doesn't care what the haters say. Granted, I'm a pirate. It, it, it sounds pretty piratey to do that. All right, let's get to the bottom of this. Is the mask even real? Taurus says it is. And he says that other people say it is too. Yeah, I mean, I know, I, I get why the media did what they did. It's a sexy story. But what they didn't say is that Harvard and Columbia University both looked at the mask. And both said the exact same thing. Well, I was going to ask you about that. The Times said that those guys didn't, in fact. I got the email. Where I fucked up, I fucked up on the verbiage. So when I sent it to them, I sent them the pictures, like, what the hell is this? And they were like, okay, that, that, what that looks like, and because of the iridium in it, and that was very important, the amount of iridium in it, and I can send you the case study. It, they said it was probably moche, so rough, maybe between 2,500 to 800 years old. The Moche was a pre-Incan civilization from Peru's northern coast. Originally, Torres claimed that the mask came from Machu Picchu. The problem with that theory is that Machu Picchu is in the mountains and nowhere near the northern coast of Peru. And on top of that, Machu Picchu was abandoned and wasn't discovered until recently. Torres also claimed that these university professors authenticated the mask, saying that it was indeed a real Moche burial mask. I misspoke on the verbiage. They said was that it's most likely. They didn't say specifically. Okay. And that's where, so it's the difference between 95% sure and 100% sure, and I fucked up on the wrong side of that. I've read the emails, and nothing about this seems conclusive. Both professors say that it could be from Peru. It could date back thousands of years. One professor even wrote and said that it could be a Spanish colonial object made in prehistoric style. Basically, a real old souvenir. They didn't say it was fake, but they didn't say it was real either. So I called one of the university archaeology professors. 
The professor, who doesn't want to be named, said that Torres called her and presented himself as a researcher from MIT. After looking at the photos, the professor thought, hmm, this is interesting, but would never authenticate the object over email. In fact, this professor doesn't authenticate objects at all. And then I contacted Donna Yates, who's a professor in criminology, whose focus is antiquity trafficking, archaeology, and art crimes. She wrote back to me and said, that's no Peruvian burial mask. It's a very, very bad and unconvincing fake. Whoever made it didn't even really try to make it look real. And there's a chance that they never even meant for it to be mistaken or authenticated. It's certainly trying to be a Peruvian style, maybe Peruvian tourism sales style. But of course, these are professionals looking at an image from an email. Also, this quote-unquote mask is a flat disc shape. It doesn't look anything like a mask. So I asked that Ivy League professor why Taurus keeps calling it a mask. And the professor was wondering the same thing. When I went back to Torres and asked him about this, he goes, oh, that's because another professor from Tulane referred to it as a mask. I'm not an archaeologist, nor am I an expert at pre-Incan art. He says he's just relying on the expertise of others. Michael Torres fully admits that he himself can't authenticate this mask, but Seafair Exploration knew someone who could. Hello. Hi, John. This is Javier from the podcast. Yeah. Is, yes, this, a, is this a better time? Yeah. So he took the mask to John DeBry. Uh, yes, absolutely. John DeBry is the director of the Center of Historical Archaeology in Melbourne, Florida. You told me you were looking into, uh, what was his name? <laughs> Michael Torres? Michael uh, Torres, yeah. What do you know about him? I actually know very little, except that uh, when he claimed that he found this particular mask, he came to my place to to authenticate it or to show me, I guess. And at that time, I thought, well, you know, it looks real enough. I thought, where do you find it? And I found it in six feet under the sand or something like that. And I thought that was uh, very unlikely. Were you officially trying to authenticate it or was he just casually showing you the mask? You know, I looked at it, and to me, it looked uh, it looked good. Naturally, I had not looked at it with a the computer, with uh, analyzing the spacing between the dots, and et cetera, et cetera. So I thought, well, it looks pretty good, but yeah, I had my doubt as to as to the find itself. Basically, so it was more of a casual examination. It wasn't like an official authentication. No, 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 not not at all. The only thing that I remember is that. I looked in my library and I found something on pre-Columbian art that looked pretty close to what he had. And I said, uh, well, if anything, it's moche. And he said, what's uh, really? And I said, yeah, it's about a thousand years old. And he thought, oh, gee. My wife is the only person that actually pegged him right after he left. She said, uh, this guy's supposed to be from Harvard and MIT. And I said, yes. And she said, no way, this guy is, just does not seem to be the type of person that graduated from a high Lee school. But in Torres' defense, John DeBry wasn't always dismissive about this mask. In fact, there's video of him holding the mask and confirming that he believes it could be real. You know, when you look at the proximity of this artifact that you found uh, with what we know is the proximity of 1715 shipwrecks, most likely the Nuestra Señora de Concepción that came from South America. It makes sense. Florida Today, a newspaper, reports that Debray was the one who suggested that this object could be the top portion of a headdress from a burial site. 
Torres isn't making this part up. Let's play out the scenario of he finds this mask and it's real. Let's just say it, it is for the sake of argument. How would a mask like that end up in the coast of Florida? Well, that was one of my questions. I, I thought it was really strange because we, we know that by the time, by the 1715 anyway, this was old news. Nobody brought anything back that, that would have this kind of image uh, or imagery. I thought, it was, I thought it was really, really strange that somebody, something like that would be on board a, uh, a ship, uh, a 1715 ship. And uh, wouldn't the rest of the ship be found around the same spot? This is what we call context. Uh, you would have something associated with the shipwreck uh, not far or nearby. And again, you know, his, his interpretation of uh, saying that he had found this in so many feet of, of, of sand doesn't make any sense. It, it just uh, does not make any sense. We imagined the scenario of the mask being real. Now let's imagine the scenario where the mask is not real. How would someone go about making such a, a fake artifact like that? It could have been a, a, a present or a, a souvenir that somebody bought and get it in fresh in seawater and make it look old. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. All I know is that I've heard that a lab looked at it and counted the spacing. There's some kind of beads on the top and space. The spacing, of the beads was too precise, actually, to, to have been there by accident. And, and, and the person who did the analysis said there's absolutely no way that anyone could have spaced those beads that precisely. Almost like a machine made it? Exactly. Yeah. It could possibly just be a rusty souvenir? Yes, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Torres is frustrated by this because he says that at first, Seafair Exploration and the other experts were excited about the mask. Now they're denying it's even real. And even DeBry said it on camera that that's from, that is most likely from the Moche people. But then, he, but you got to remember, DeBry, he's, also, he's a state archaeologist, but he's also on Seafair's payroll. He originally backed the, the findings of the, of the mask, right? The way I understand Correct. And then he flipped Correct. And what, why, what, what happened? What made that change? Money. Money. When we come back, we're going to look into the financials of Seafair Exploration. The only reason why we're talking about Michael Torres is because a publicly traded company called Seafair Exploration is suing him for fraud. So right now, it's really just their word against Michael Torres. And I just assumed that because they're a publicly traded company, that they were legit. But when I saw their stock price, I was shocked. As of October 2020, their stock price is listed at 55 ten thousandths of a penny. I don't even know how to visualize how small that is for you. Basically, their stock isn't worth a penny or half of that. I'm exaggerating here, but it's more like it's worth a handful of atoms of a penny. That's how small it is. Seafair Exploration is listed in the over-the-counter market, otherwise known as a penny stock. I'm not a financial guy, so this was news to me. For help, I reached out to my friend, Marcio Andrade, who knows more about this stuff than I do. What is a penny stock? What is an over-the-counter stock? Because actually, sure. I don't know anything about this. Like, yeah, no, that's totally cool. 
you know, at this point, I'm a pretty experienced investor and all my stocks are either listed in the Dow or listed in the NASDAQ. But then you have this over-the-counter known as OTC, or you may hear terms like pink slips or pink market. So the -the over-the-counter is viewed as highly speculative. And these are typically companies that for various reasons are not able to be listed on the traditional exchanges. Some are legitimate, like for example, I believe Nissan, I believe Nestle, obviously legit companies. They are listed in the over-the-counter market because they're foreign entities and they don't want to follow the, the, the reporting requirements that you would require for them to be part of a, of a DAO or a NASDAQ. While that's true that there, there, there are legitimate reasons to be in the OTC market, there is a big number. I think there are like over 10,000 plus companies on the OTC market. And the challenge though is a lot of them are speculative or really shady, right? They are companies under financial distress. I, I kind of want you to tell me about Seafair from a financial point of view. Like if sure. you were going to buy this stock, like tell me, is it, is it a good stock? Is it a bad place to invest your money? So these guys, uh, they are on the OTC, and it seems to me like they are spot-on case study of a company, why that company is on the OTC, because they are under significant financial distress. In fact, I don't know how they, they're probably not going to survive past this quarter. If you go to the SEC and look at their results, <laughs> this is amazing, dude. So if you look at... Um, Show me your... Uh, can you share your screen? The SEC is where they capture all the, fin- all the companies that have, right, that are public. This is amazing, right? So in the last six months, they, they basically shown an income, a revenue of $4,200. But they have expenses of... million (laughs) dollars and okay i'm not a financial expert but that doesn't make sense (laughs) no it sure doesn't and so so what is interesting obviously when you ask me to take a look i read their who they are right and seafair is in this business which is amazing that they get licensed in florida for a couple shipwrecks and I'm assuming part of what they're telling investors is we may find millions, you know, stick with us. Look at this, this is remarkable, right? They pay the last six months almost $600,000. So someone is making, probably making some good money there. So then if you look at the balance sheet, it tells the, the same story. Marshall says that the company has $600,000 in cash, but after they pay their employees and their contractors the $600,000 in salaries and contracts, they're basically left with nothing. They're gonna go under, unless they can convince somebody to, to raise funds. They have so much debt with no revenue. They basically have no more cash. They probably will go under now. They probably if soon be filed for bankruptcy. If you're keeping score, Michael Torres is accused of telling stories in order to, I don't know, raise his profile. But Seafair Exploration, on the other hand, is telling stories to raise their stock price. So here's, here's the part where you may or may not have read. So you're just looking at Seafair Exploration 
just by looking at their balance sheet, right? That's You're it. Just looking have, at the I, numbers. And because you asked me, I purposely did not Google news nothing. I have no idea. That's all I see. Well, this is interesting because the the idea is easy, right? They're they're going around trying to sell their stock based on the promise that they are going to find this Spanish galleon. It's going to be filled with gold and silver. They're going to make a fortune, right? There are legitimate salvage companies out there that actually do find treasure and they sell it and they do make money. But would you be surprised to know that Seafair has never found anything of value ever? Yeah, I was looking back at their revenues over the course of, I think, back to 2007, and I didn't see any. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't be surprised based on their financials, yeah. So why is that? What kind of company operates for 13 years without ever making money? I guess finding treasure is really not easy, but at some point, wouldn't you just hang it up? Why would anyone buy this stock? For that, I wanted to talk with a person familiar with the treasure salvage industry. This is Bradley. Bradley Farmer is a treasure hunting enthusiast. What, what's your background? Are you in the industry? No, been in construction. That was my career. But I am familiar with the industry. I have invested in a couple of stocks that their primary business is salvaging shipwrecks. Bradley says that Seafarer Exploration has had a few artifacts in their collection, but nothing to get excited about. A previous salvage company that they associated with found a rusted pistol that appears to be from the time period in question. They have a broken silver plate and parts of a cannon and a few cannonballs, but again, these weren't even Seafarer Exploration's finds. Bradley Farmer says that he's an investor in salvage companies, and the real companies have a long track record of finding treasure. Because they've had success, they've shown me what real salvers do. And what what Seafarer is doing is, is, is a joke. So are these guys just really bad at finding treasure? Or is there something else? Spoiler alert, it's something else. It turns out that even if Seafarer Exploration finds La Concepcion, they can't do anything with it. The, the thing is, the state of Florida issue two types of permits, an exploration permit and a recovery permit. And the exploration permit, they'll issue all day long. If you find anything, it has to be left on the ocean floor. Not only is Seafair Exploration not able to locate the treasure from La Concepcion, they can't even touch the treasure. You see, it's a lot more complicated than finding a treasure and then recovering it. They need a permit to recover the treasure. The way Bradley Farmer puts it makes me think that Seafair Exploration actually has a better chance of finding Bigfoot than getting a hold of a treasure filled with silver and gold. And why is that? Well, because the treasure isn't theirs to have. According to Farmer, it belongs to Spain. Seafair is claiming that they're going after one of the 1715 fleet ships. And Spain has signed a treaty that they won't do business with commercial salvers. You see, back in 2001, the Supreme Court of the United States ruled in favor of Spain after a treasure hunting company tried to recover two Spanish vessels. To learn more, I called one of the attorneys representing the Kingdom of Spain. His name is James Gould. I represented Spain to protect those ships from a treasure hunting group who claimed they had found them 
So the idea that a treasure hunting group could find it and then pick up the children's toys, the wedding rings, all of these things from a tragedy and sell them was unacceptable to Spain. And the courts agreed. Therefore, because Spain won the case, it's foolish for any salvage company to even try to recover treasure off of a Spanish shipwreck. Most everybody who might be thinking about getting into treasure hunting now realizes it's a bad idea and that a lot of money can be spent for nothing. Hmm. That the treasure, the treasure comes from the pockets of the investors, not from finding and selling gold coins. And that's money that comes from foolish investors with sort of dreams of gold. Like you pointed out, these salvage companies, especially the publicly traded ones, are implying that if they find this treasure, your investment in this company will pay off in silver and and gold, right? It's been a long time since I have seen any financial profits coming back from any treasure hunting venture. Uh, And all you see are losses. And sometimes it's just amazing to see how foolish the pitch is from the treasure hunting company. So the company that claims that Michael Torres fooled them might actually be peddling fool's gold themselves. Here's Bradley Farmer again, the treasure hunting enthusiast. What do you think is their motivation for finding the Spanish galleon? Their motivation is to sell stock. (laughs) The likelihood of them getting rights is slim to none. I mean, they have to know that. They're selling the idea of finding treasure. That's what they're selling. And by doing that, they raise money by selling shares or notes. And then they do paid promotions. And the guy they sold the notes to cash in. Farmer says that there are legit treasure hunting companies out there finding treasure and making money. It's just that seafarer exploration is not one of them. Here's how it works. Basically, they go after privately owned ships that sank, whose owner is no longer in business. In other words, they go after shipwrecks, not from Spain, that were abandoned by people who are no longer around to claim them. If a treasure company finds something, they go to court. If the owner doesn't show up to claim it, it's theirs. Seafarers, they've got they've got a questionable past, and and and, I, and I've seen it firsthand. I've seen them threaten me. I've seen them threaten other people. It's like they want to control message boards. They want to control the message, and I get that, but show results. One of the few financial successes that Seafair has ever had was when they hired Michael Torres. Before Seafair hired Torres, their stock was at an all-time low. And after this appearance on the Investor Podcast, their penny stock had a sharp spike increase. Here's Kyle Kennedy, the CEO of Seafair Exploration, touting Torres around to investors. Dr. Torres, he is a brilliant scientist. And he's helping us develop state-of-the-art technology that will allow us to look under the sand and identify gold and silver. And, and he, he's physically building that for us right now. They touted, they touted Torres 
to the hilt. I mean, they played him up for all they were worth. I want to know, is Michael Torres legit? I don't know that he is. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. He does He does some videos, and it looks like he finds some stuff. But what do you say about yeah. some of these wild claims that he's making? I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I, mean, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when I talked to him for the first time yesterday, I mean, he mm-hmm. just inundated me with information to the point where it was really hard to to keep track because there's so much that he says he's involved in he says he found the crown jewels of pre-incan civilization he found the missing settlement in savannah georgia he's found the mass jewish burial site you know like Mm -hmm. all these things it's such such amazing stories do you buy anything he's saying i would like to see authentication if i was a reporter I would want to. I would want to know somebody could verify. It. Michael's told me this. I don't. I don't know. I mean, I. I don't know the man. It's funny because when I first started this, I really thought that maybe Michael. You know, I. I'm starting to think that maybe both sides are embellishing. Yeah, you got two bullshitters. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of what I'm I mean, feeling. Farmer says that Torres was supposed to design the ship that was going to scan the ocean floor for silver and gold, but that never happened. Kyle Kennedy says that these lies set his company back, costing him money and his investors money. Right now, I feel like I'm back to where I started. Either Michael Torres is telling the truth and Seafair is launching a smear campaign against him, or Kyle Kennedy and Seafair Exploration are victims of a man who's accused of faking his credentials. Some are white lies, but others are just plain disgusting, like faking a military career for his personal gain. The point is that somebody here is lying, and lying about things that are easily verifiable. So the question remains, is Michael Torres really who he says he is? Or did Seafair Exploration prop him up in order to raise his stock price? Next time on Pretend, I'm gonna get answers. Torres says that he has proof that this is character assassination. And I'm going to talk to Kyle Kennedy, CEO of Seafair Exploration, to get his take on all this. Creative Babble.